One of the things that I'm realizing just in the last 30 minutes or so is that so many of you who have come today, who have listened to the podcast through the years, and we started about five years ago, uh, when we were kind of the only voice at the time warning people about what was to be coming, about critical race theory, about intersectionality, about this encroaching tide of supranationalism, the move from the sense of having sovereignty as a nation, sovereignty as a people, and moving to more of an idea of a technocratic society where, you know, the thing about all you folks here is that you don't really know what's best for you. You need the experts to tell you what's best for you. And if you trust them, everything's going to be okay. But one of the things that you can think about, really, is we, we joke about the whole idea of purgatory and so forth, but in many ways, that's the concept that they see actually happening right now as we talk about this period that would start around 2020 and then continue through 2030, and eventually the end goal date is 2050. But this concept that we need to go through a period of pain, a period of change, a period of transformation, a period by which, by the way, if you could please silence your phones, really help us out, um, a period in which everything that you know to be true, everything that you know to be normative, that that all needs to change. And it's not something that, see, you're just not smart enough to know these things. You're not someone that can make these good decisions based upon the knowledge that you've received or the things that you've known for your whole life. Those things that you could plan upon. That idea that, look, I'm going to invest in this because I understand the trends and what's coming and we as a society are moving in this direction and this is what we need to do. No, no, no. It's the idea that as opposed to you would say a slow progression of things that happen in society, but yet with some things that are anchored always, that we know to be true. Well, we have to fast forward past all of that into a society that is controllable, a society that is planable, a society that is sustainable. So that's the way it goes with everything across the board. Now, as I was, uh, I had a, about a 15 minute spell in the restroom, not because of anything biological or anything, but just because people, I think, were talking to me. And then several folks as I came out here that were talking to me as well that wanted to say, hey, look, um, I want you to know that two years ago, it was your podcast, it was your material that helped us to make the decision to leave our church and to start to find someplace else. And I got to tell you, that's heavy for me. Because if anything, what I really intended to do 20-some years ago when my wife and I, and then Kathy Kang, who was just up here a few minutes ago, our intention was to give you a positive reason to go to the places that you should go with good theology, with good ecclesiology, with a good basis for objective truth in terms of the way that you search through the scriptures really with a statement of faith that would be solid, that would carry you through things, and as way of another pattern of which you could learn things that would bring you to the heights of where not only your Christian faith could take, could take you, but also a way that you could observably view the world and know how to navigate it. Well, all of that changed. A lot of that started to change greatly. 
But the thing that I want you to think about, we'll talk about this in this presentation, we'll talk about it in the presentation tomorrow. I've changed my presentation a little bit, by the way, because I want to start slower. Uh, I was talking to the pastor of this church yesterday and some other folks, and I think I probably would have been on the accelerator too fast, uh, that maybe we'd have jumped past the basics of things that are the foundations that will help you to understand what the heck is going on right now, because a lot is changing, right? And it's changing faster than you've ever seen it before, because maybe if you're somebody that was born in the 50s or the 60s or the 70s, well, you could expect things. You could take out a 30-year mortgage or a 15-year mortgage, or you could make plans five, 10 years down the road, and you would know that, yeah, that stuff's going to happen. You can't even think six months ahead right now. Things are changing, and things are changing fast. Because you and I are really being transitioned daily from an analog world of objectivity, of real and true relationships, of real and authentic experiences of real life itself. And we are being transitioned, but more so pushed into a digital world of subjective and manipulative experiences, of fake online digital relationships, where some of our interactions unknowingly are even with automated bots. What do you think is one of the things that's holding up the Twitter sale right now with Elon Musk? We are being manipulated into a life that we don't even know is on the horizon. And I want to ask this question of you right now, those of you that are seated here, and those of you that are watching this video later on, maybe a month or so from now. It's 2022. It's summer. How much different will life be for you in the United States in 2027? Maybe you haven't thought that far into the future yet. And as I say that you might say this, you might respond to me, well, Mike, that's five years from now. How different could life be? Well, I want you to take a few moments and think about that for a second, prayerfully, and think back to where you were and what outlook you actually had in 2017. That was five years ago. And if your 2022 you of today could go back in time and talk to your 2017 you, what would you say to your 2017 you? Well, most likely, if you're anything like the men and women that I was trying to warn in 2017, the 2017 you would probably think that the 2020 you is absolutely crazy. You know, you're really certifiably, certifiably insane. A conspiracy theorist, maybe they would say, you are. And as you made, let's say, an appointment at Starbucks in 2017, Let's say that if you were the 2020 you, and we had a way of taking you back in time, five years, and you're going to go back to the 2017 you, and you're going to have a time with them for about an hour and a half in Starbucks. You're going to slowly slip on, sip on that latte. Personally, I prefer a London Fog, two, two bags of Earl Grey tea, a little bit of extra shot of vanilla. But you'd sit down to the 2017 you and say, say look, <laughs> I know this sounds crazy, but I'm just trying to prepare you for what's going to be happening in the next five years, okay? <clears throat> and 2017, you would probably respond, okay, uh, yeah. By the way, uh, 
2022 you, have you been under a lot of stress lately? <laughs> and 2020 you would probably respond and say, hey, man, you don't know how much stress I've been under lately. I've been under a lot of stress over the last two years. I've been giving it up to the Lord, but it's been real stress. And of course, 2017 you would probably respond in a sarcastic, sarcastic tone or something like, okay, yeah, sure, 2022 you, why don't you tell me what sort of awful, horrible, really bad things are going to be coming my way in the next few years? Just come on, let it come. And 2022 you would say, well, 2017 you, a lot will be coming our way. It will be a complete and total change for everybody throughout the world. And as 2017 you listens, he would look at his watch, you know, and he would look around the room and say, okay, so let's go ahead and hear your theory. And 2022 you would look very caringly and with some sense of empathy back to 2017 you that doesn't understand why you're looking at them with empathy. And you would say, look, 2017 you, this is no theory. And here's what's going to happen. First of all, the president that we just elected, they're going to impeach him twice. Yeah, twice. There's going to be a worldwide pandemic. Well, sort of a pandemic, really more of a pandemic of fear. And every single person in the world is going to be told that they need to stay home and not go to work. They need to lock down completely. And people will be split into two categories, the essential and the non-essential. I need you to think about that in terms of categorization. We're not just talking about ethnicities. We're not just talking about genders. You're telling people, oh, you're essential, but you're non-essential. That was one of the first and most horrific things that could be told to the people in our civilization. So anyway, at this point, 2017, you probably sparks and gives a slight eye roll. So you say, okay, look, let's get back on subject here. So you're going to get sick with this thing. And as soon as you get sick, Everywhere they want to trace and track you. Anyone going outside will be told that they must face, wear face coverings at all times. People will be arrested for taking their children to the playground. You'll be arrested for going to the beach. And tens of thousands of small businesses across the country will go out of business. Now, of course, when those tens of thousands of small businesses are going out of business, what will happen is that the largest corporations, especially those that have an online presence, Amazon and Walmart and Target, oh, their profits will go through the roof, skyrocket. I mean, if anything, the Dow is going to go up. Well, how is that if the entire country is shut down, locked down, nobody's moving, nobody's using anything, it's just falling apart? Well, what exactly is going to be happening? And by the way, if you start to talk about or kind of wonder about the real reasons why all this is happening, that it's not really adding up, and you start talking about those things in social media or in YouTube or anything else, well, you will be completely deplatformed from everything. You'll be told that you can't say those things, that you're dangerous for questioning 
the authorities. And then, in the middle of this massive lockdown, just when people are really starting to get agitated, after March and April and most of May, then a riot led by Marxists will take place across this entire nation. They will literally beat people to death. They will burn down cities. They will call for the end of law enforcement. And they will destroy, by the way, those few businesses that were just holding on, barely holding on, to try to make it through another month receiving some magical funds from the government. I mean, really, 2017 you, the closest approximation that I can give to you about what's going to be happening in the future really happened in 1938 in Nazi Germany through Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass. But they will bring this Marxist ideology as their prime weapon. And it's something that really you haven't heard about, but really it's been going on for a few years, but you haven't seen it because it's really happening in the middle in the bureaucracy. And it's this thing called critical race theory. And they will demand that everyone must adhere to the tenets of critical race theory. Everyone must. And it won't just be the government. It won't just be the schools. It wouldn't just be the leftist ideologues. No, everyone's going to demand that you do it. And everyone from social media companies, whether it be on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you got to put up your black square to say, I stand with the Marxists. Almost like a religion. And they will make all sorts of people bow down and repent of their ethnicity. Repent of their continuing to operate within the current system. Because it's not really their skin color that they're after. It's the system itself. And they will also tell them that they need to promise to do better. They will come up to people that are dining in free states. I mean, I know it took for you guys in Arizona for a while, but in Florida, we were much freer than you for months and months and months ahead of you. But they'll come up to people that are dining outdoors. And these mobs will tell them that they must raise their fist. And they must say that they have allegiance to this Marxist organization. All the corporations, of course, will join in, telling everyone that they have to transform their workplaces. And all of a sudden, you won't be hired or promoted because you did your job well or because you were highly skilled. But you'll be hired or promoted because your skin color or your gender matched the quota. And you will like, very likely be fired because your skin, skin color or your gender did not match the quota. This has happened all over the nation, by the way. It's not just a question of hiring, it's a question of firing. And by the way, 2017, you, I know this sounds crazy, absolutely insane. But the evangelical church is actually going to back all this lunacy. And if you haven't noticed 2017 you, they've already been talking this way for a number of years. Have you heard the Gospel Coalition? 
Well, yeah, but that's that 2017 news. Oh, well, Gospel Coalition, I mean, they're just, you know, they're trying to reach a new group of people and they just care. No, no, no. It's a wonderful dialectical organization. But they will back this in 2020, at least for about six months. And the main reason that they would have to stop is because years before, some fat guy and an atheist started talking about it and warning everybody. And we lost a lot of our friends and a lot of our business and the other things we did because we knew what was coming. You see, James Lindsay and I, we were 2020 to you in 2017. But you're going back to this 2017 you and you say, look, the whole race Marxism thing and all, and all the schools and institutions will promote, believe it or not, child homosexual and trans grooming. And little kids, even under the age of 10, will be told that they need to be transitioned sexually through surgery and chemicals, like what you would do if someone had committed rape many times over and is chemically castrated. That's what we're going to do to little kids. And by the way, none of the conservative leaders, none of them will really say a thing while this is happening. As a matter of fact, they're going to try to find a way that they don't have to say anything, like Asa Hutchinson, Republican governor. Now at this point, of course, in the conversation, because this sounds nuts, doesn't it? Can you imagine back in 2017 thinking about this and someone telling you that all this is going to happen? 2017 you says, well, wait, <laughs> dude, look, this ain't going to happen. People won't put up with it. You know, and 2022 says, look, um, I don't know if you've been on medication or maybe you need to get on medication. Maybe, maybe you've been watching too many dystopian movies, but look, and then you say, 2022 you says, oh, no, wait, there's more. <laughs> look, 2017, they will then run that old delirious guy that was part of the last administration. <laughs> this, they're going to try to say that he's a wildly popular president. And he'll get more votes than any human being in history for president of the United States. And by the way, before he gets elected, they will send out ballots to people at their homes without names. And then people can just write in and mail their, in their vote, you know, because they're afraid of the, you know, the health crisis and all. To be careful, because I want to make sure this, this gets played on YouTube, right? See, I'm playing the game, too. And, and by the way, all the social media will tell everyone that they will not be allowed to comment on the election until the official results are in. No, like, really. And then the old guy who had no support will get in. I, I, I mean, the, the guy's on Adderall. I don't know what he's on, but how he even functions is amazing. And that old guy, as soon as he takes office, by the way, something like kind of like the Reichstag is going to happen in between the time that he's elected and the time that he's actually sworn in office. I mean, it's just crazy. I mean, the, the parallels to Nazi Germany are just amazing. Anyway, so the old guy gets in, and this is the first thing he does as soon as he takes office, is he shuts off the tap to our oil and gas. I mean, basically what he's going to do is he's going to do something that will actually wreck our country. He will do things that are not meant to help us, but they will put us into pain. He's going to disrupt and dismantle 
the United States. And he's not going to even care about votes in 2017. You will say, oh, come on, look, there's a point that everybody comes to. I mean, even Barack Obama, we know that he was basically the Fabian president. You know, Barack Obama was far more progressive than this old guy that you're talking about right now. And even he cared about what the votes would be in the next, oh, no, no, no. you have to understand something. That's all kind of over now. Because once the regime takes power, it's going to be nearly impossible to get them out, and they know it too. But they do operate on fear too. But by the way, let me tell you what's going to happen in 2017, you. By the fall of 2022, gas prices are going to be $7 or $8 per gallon in Phoenix. Now, those of you that are here right now, you're going, oh, come on, Mike, it's $5 now. So, oh, just you wait. <laughs> oh, it's coming, guys. California. Yeah. Yes, sir, California is our, that's now our benchmark that we want to make sure that we reach. <laughs> Maximum pain. And think about what that does. Supply chains for everything are going to be disrupted. I mean, beef, pork, chicken, and 2017U, even baby formula. I was at Fry's the other day. And in Fry's near the front, instead of where you used to be able to go in back and get baby formula, Baby formula is under lock and key at the supermarket. And remember, people were warning about this actually back in January, telling you it was going to be happening again, called a conspiracy theorist. You know, and now 2017, you, I can't even get a laptop that I need. I'd have to wait for months to get it. I have to put it on order and wait for it to get delivered. I just can't walk into a store and buy it anymore. You know, it's almost like everything is rationed. Almost like we are being moved from a capitalistic free market economy that is on demand. Remember back in 2017, you? Man, you could just say, I want this pair of shoes by this afternoon. There it is. I want this kind of food by an hour from now. And there it is. Well, we are being moved from that capitalistic system really into a socialistic system, socialism. But you know, 2017U, it, it's not socialism. Because you know, it's also kind of corporatism. You know, and another word that's just easier to say than corporatism is fascism. Because the major companies and banks seem to be guiding this as well. So it's not just corporatism, it's also socialism, and it's really going to more of a supranational kind of global thing. It's almost like national socialism, but it's more international socialism with national socialistic qualities. And all your churches, outside of a few, like that John Benzinger's church there in Phoenix that you might want to consider visiting. They'll be afraid to speak against this. Just like they're telling you now, as you start to complain about the fact that your pastor started to sound like Rachel Maddow. They'll be telling you, oh, no, none of this is happening. 
No, I mean, oh, CRT, that's just, that's just rumor. They'll gaslight you to death. So at this point, 2017, you says, well, okay, 2022, you, I'll be praying for you, brother. Um, by the way, I suggest some counseling. And remember to just trust God and don't worry about things so much. I mean, we don't need watchmen on the wall anymore. It's 2017. We have conservative institutions to continue the growth of our great nation and protect the church. We have strong theological seminaries and, and institutions, let's say, like the Gospel Coalition and Together for the Gospel to guard us against any crazy theological or ideological revolution. So just take a few days off, 2022. Seek some help, okay? I'll be praying for you, brother. So 2017 you would never believe what, what is happening or what would be happening in the next five years. It sounds like fantasy, science fiction to them. And it did to you, too. You have to admit this. If you were to go back and tell yourself what is happening now, you wouldn't believe you. So, in essence, what you kind of have to start to believe is not the unbelievable, but the consequential. Everything has consequences. Everything that's happening to you now, everything that you're experiencing now, is consequentialist. In other words, the things that happened in 2020, which were horrible, they broke the system, and then continued to then pour lighter fluid all over it and light it on fire in 2021, it has consequences. Because you have people that no longer are interested in protecting the United States, of watching the United States flourish. Oh, they have other goals, and it's not the United States. So here's the question that I have for you today. Will the 2022 you, the you that is here today right now or watching, will you believe what the 2027 you is going to say in the next few days. Because that's what James Lindsay and I are going to bring to you. So, if the 2027 you were to ask you on Monday to show up for a coffee at Starbucks, would you believe them? And then would you act with urgency? to do something about this, because it's not just about having a conference or buying swag online, becoming part of our affinity community, so you can identify it with sovereign nations or new discourses like a Star Trek convention. No, it's about doing something about this, and it is up to us. And yes, I believe in the power of God to work in and through us but we must be found faithful. And the question is, is if we were found faithful or passive because we were lulled to sleep while all of this was happening. Literally, your nation burning down and many of your churches participating with it and telling you to do nothing about it. 
not to believe in conspiracy theories as all of this was falling apart because the center cannot hold. The truth is we are living in one of the most perilous times in human history. The first century BC poet said this, and this is the way that I started my organization back in, what year did I start my organization? 2017. The very first thing that I talked about was this. The first century BC poet Virgil said, happy is he who is able to know the causes of things and who trampled beneath his feet all fears, inexorable fate, and the roar of devouring hell. Happy is he that knows ahead the causes of things. Well, we're going to talk about the causes of things. We're going to talk about what you can do about it from just a plain and pragmatic level. And if you understand the causes of things, you will not only understand, but as well anticipate what will be happening around you in the coming months. Because think about it from the perspective of those that are actually doing this right now. In order to transform our culture, our economy, our political structures, our religions, our societies against the realized democratic will of the people, you must go through several steps of transformation. Transformation trans, that's where you get the word trans from. Because you are transforming. And you are transforming quickly and unnaturally against the nature of things. So, really, what you have is that we are in the midst of an American cultural revolution, much like Mao's cultural revolution. It's a psychological transformation. Trying to change your thinking patterns about the way that you think of things. Even myself, as I just said a few minutes ago in the, in the presentation, I'm thinking about, well, what would I say or what do I have on the screen that could cause me problems down the road where I might not be able to actually, let's say, have this thing go up on a social media site? So I'm self-correcting at that point, right? And I'm also starting to think about things differently in terms of the way that I respond to the market, in terms of my investing, in terms of my spending, in terms of what I do. Maybe I'm saying, you know, I'm not going to take that risk and invest in this, or I'm not confident about where things go. And all of a sudden, that begins a process that happens psychologically that really defines the way that the market responds. Or maybe the way that you actually think about a spouse. Maybe, and this is also in the other points that I have up here, maybe you're, you're thinking, maybe you're a young man or young woman, and you're thinking, I would really like to get married. But the young woman's going, you know, though, but about that whole men thing and them kind of being the dominant one in the relationship and me having to take his name, maybe I don't want to do that. And as well, I'm hypersensitive right now about anything that that man says to me that might, might make me fragile. And the men are thinking, you know what? <laughs> Although I would love to be married and maybe that girl across the room is beautiful, you know what I don't need is I don't need to go up to someone and say, Hi, how are you? My name is Joe. Would you like to get a cup of coffee tomorrow and be accused of rape? 
And that's what's happening with young boys and young girls and teenagers all across the nation right now in schools. You know one thing that's happened in the past five years that's remarkable? Actually, six or seven years. Remember how we all used to be, how many of you are churched right now and have been churched for a number of years? Evangelical churches, Catholic churches, okay. Great number of you. So for some of you, one of the big things we were concerned about about 20 years ago was what? Teenage pregnancy, right? We had to wear the promise rings and all that kind of stuff, and you had Joshua Harris, and I kissed dating goodbye, which means that you had a whole generation that didn't get married, and now he and his wife have split up, and now she's apparently homosexual or something like that. And So you have a whole generation that didn't marry. We were concerned about these things. In the last six or seven years, have you seen the rates of teenage pregnancy? They've dropped off the cliff. Not a lot of pregnancies anymore. I mean, there are some. But it's just, I mean, literally dropped by 80%. Because boys and girls don't do that anymore. It's not a thing. So you have a psychological transformation that actually affects everything. There are other consequential things that happen because of maybe good things. Teenage pregnancy without being married was a bad thing. But as well, there are other things that happen that are consequential because of the steps that you took. Think about this for a second. Did you know that there is a tremendous drop in the availability of organs for transplant right now? Did you know that? I mean, it's a real crisis. Do you want to know why that's happening? Because people aren't driving as much anymore. And the main source of how you ended up getting harvested organs was automobile accidents. So there's less automobile accidents, which means that there's less organs available, which is why you had that on your driver's license. Say that, yes, I'm an organ donor. There are consequences to things. There's a philosophical and spiritual transformation. The way in which we approach our lines of thinking and the way that we think about things, the processes that we go through cognitively, that needs to change. The way that you think about what is truth as opposed to what truth works or what truth actually helps for us to maintain our goals, to reach our goals. The spiritual transformation that goes along with that is necessary because of the fact that we are actually moving to another system. So if we're moving to another system, that system has to be comprehensive. It's a worldview system. Everything must work together. It has to be like cogs in a wheel. That's how the machinery operates. If there's something that is out of that cog or that they don't fit, the whole thing breaks down. It all stops. Just one small piece. So it has to be everything. It has to be education. It has to be the church. It has to be the corporations. It has to be the financial institutions. It has to be Major League Baseball. It has to be the NFL. It has to be Hollywood. It has to be TV. It has to be social media. It has to be your local news media. It has to be everything. Everything has to be a part of the new system for those cogs in the wheel to operate properly. Because the new system is total. The new system, in many ways, for it to work in the way that it's designed, needs to be sovereign. It's a cultural transformation. If you're making these changes, it will affect the cultures that you have. As a matter of fact, one thing you want to do 
is wherever you had a culture, in a culture you would think of, and this is Gramsci's word, he would call it a hegemony, is that you have a cultural hegemony that works within a civilization, within a nation. This is the way we do things. Here are our traditions, right? This is what we do on Sundays. This is what we do on these feast days or on these holidays. This is how the nation comes together. This is our, how our faith communities come together. These are the things that we stand for as a nation that we all care about, whether we're Republicans or Democrats or whatever, independents. It doesn't matter. We all stand for these things. Well, that all has to change. One of the things that you've been doing very well, and it's not just a question of Democrats, this is Republicans as well, is that you introduce, and those of you that are here in Arizona, by the way, I'm half Cuban, okay? So a little qualify there. My wife is from, from China, so. But one thing that you do is you really impose unvetted, nonstop immigration. There can, the only country you want to make sure that does not end up coming into the United States is Cuba because they're against socialism. So you want to say, nope, don't you even get on that boat. Don't you even come close to Miami. We're not going to let you in. But everybody else, let them pour in. And now that there aren't a lot of people there, they're looking for a good life. Hey, look, if I was in a very poor nation and there were really no chances for, be, for bettering my life, I would say, yep, I'm going to take the chance. I'm going to try to make it to America. And there's probably a good amount of those people that want to come and work hard. But what you want to do is you want to create this situation where actually you have a bulkhead that's coming in like an icebreaker and breaking through the hegemony that was there before. And really what you have is critical immigration theory 30, 40 years ago, which now is critical immigration praxis. It's the practicing of critical immigration. In other words, a way that you can look at the way the immigration system was, and the only time you ever refer to it is as that broken immigration system, which is what Republicans and Democrats have been doing for the past 10 years. It's one guy that came along, this orange-haired guy. He's kind of stepping. He goes, why are we doing this? We've got to put up a wall. We've got to control this. Of course, he's a racist and bigot and everything else, right? Because he said, one thing that we don't want to do is we want to, we want to control our growth. We want to make sure that we do this in a way that it doesn't break our system. But if what you're trying to do is break the system, then you let it go out of control. And then you need to have a political and governance transformation as well. If you're allowing these things to happen, if your growth rate is so great that you have literally tens of millions of more people in your nation that you did not have in your nation in 2020, when you are suffering from a negative birth rate right now, is it means that the people that are here that were raised in America are not replicating at the rate of which people that were not raised here in America are replicating, which is not always bad because that's the way that America was actually built. But those people that came to America had a dream, and they had the dream and the promises of America, as opposed to the way that the NGOs are going down and sourcing people right now and just saying, come on up, y'all come. We're not going to look in your criminal backgrounds. We're not going to even do about it if you actually do anything about it. If you commit a crime here in the United States, we're going to let it happen. Which is nothing. I mean, the people that are here that are immigrants that came here legally are like, this is not good. I don't want where I came from to end up becoming where I am now. I left that and I did it the legal way. So I could be a part of a system that would give me the promises of the things that I could have if I worked hard, 
if I had good ideas, if I played by the rules. So what you're saying is don't play by the rules because it has nothing to do with that. It has to do with justice. You're saying, well, what do you mean by justice? Well, if you take a look at the United States as being the main problem of everybody else suffering all over the world, well, the United States needs to be punished. It needs to be changed, and changed radically. So in many ways, that's what's happening right now. So it's kind of hard to conceive that all that's taking place and changing around us, that really what you have is great tectonic plates if you think about the way that you learn in geology, that would hold the plates of our continents together, they're shifting right now underneath our collective feet. And not only that, but the acceleration of these changes is now coming in such a way that most of you really have no way of knowing what comes tomorrow. 2017 you, he's expecting things to be the same. No. We're going to be suffering earthquakes, category 10 types. And we're losing even the ability to be surprised or shocked when the next pillar of our civilization falls. One boundary after the other is transgressed. One institution after another is torn down. One pillar after another is demolished. So really sadly, what we're watching right now is the dismantling of an entire civilization by people who claim that in doing so, they're serving the liberation of humanity. So we are, as I said previously, in many ways, in the American Cultural Revolution. It is out with the old, the way that we used to do things, and in with the new, the way the things that you must do things and you don't have a say in it. And this must happen at a rapid pace to the point where you can't even catch up. You remember when you know, we taught, how many of you were cognizant of things around you back in 1991, let's say? 1990, back when we first attacked uh, Iraq and so forth. Uh, you know, this is when George H.W. Bush was in. They had a term that they used in our attacks. It was called what? Shock and awe? That's what you're experiencing right now, but in fifth generational warfare. This isn't bombs and bullets and all sorts of explosive devices and, you know, cruise missiles and so forth. No, this is an ideological attack, an informational attack. So, pushback from you will not be tolerated. And the minimizing of resistance of you is created through one thing, really. It's fear. In a lot of ways, that fear is delivered in a religious process. Very much like any cult that you could think of. But in Christianity, because most of us here that are familiar with the understanding of the basis of Christianity, this is something that James Lindsay has been talking about quite a bit late, lately, is that you have a faith that is based upon the tenets of logos, right? Logos is the essential element of creation, and it's the gospel itself in John 1.1. And you would say this in John 1.1, right? That in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. But this new religion that's being brought into us right now, 
It is a religion of emotion, a religion of fear. It is a religion of pathos. A religion based on fear, vulnerability, and reaction. So what they have done is they've created a cult around pathos, a cult around fear. And I've been saying this for years. I'm glad that other people are starting to repeat this now. It's so important. It's the largest cult startup in the history of mankind. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Billions of people gripped by this. And the way that you transition people into a cult is by manipulating their vulnerability. So you make those that you wish to pull into your cult feel vulnerable about something, fearful and vulnerable. And then you give them, you funnel them into one resolution to that vulnerability. But to get to that one resolution is important to take those that you wish to manipulate down a path of obedience, of baby steps. You know, first something that's easy. And then to the next obedience baby step. Until you arrive at the big step of obedience that they would have never have taken in the first place if you had introduced that first. So it's like this, and I know Jordan Peterson talks about this. He says, it's one tiny step at a time. They'll tell you to move three inches. And you protest, and you go, no, 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 we, we, we can't do that. No, no, there's a, no, you need to do this. If we all do this, it'll all be over. Okay, I'll move those three steps. Then they'll wait a while, they'll wait for you to calm down. Then they're going to say, oh, we need you to move again. This is very important. That did work, but we need to take the next steps to really make this work. And you go, no, well, I can't do that. We should not do that. We're going to go on Tucker Carlson and complain, complain about it. We're going to do all these things. But then you're going to, okay, I'll do that. Over here. And then they're going to give it a few months. They're going to say it again. Look, this is really serious. We have to do this. You must do this. If you can just do this, it's all over. We can end this forever, and we can set a new path together. All right, I'll take that. Then they come back again, and they say, okay, we have to do it again. Here's the reason why. We have gorilla pox that's coming now, <laughs> whatever it may be, okay? And we have to do this. And you go, no, no, we can't do that now. And they go, hmm. Well, we got a problem. You say, you know what we're actually going to do? We're going to take our trucks in the middle of January. We're going to surround your capital. We're going to blow the horns. We're not going anywhere. It's going to be like 20 below zero, and we're going to stay here. We're going to have a party until you leave. Boy, does that threaten them. And then that catches on all over the world, in Australia, in New Zealand. And you know where it really caught on that scared the heck out of them? Israel. They surrounded Jerusalem, and here's the thing that really scared them. You had Israeli Jews that were truckers, you had Christians, and you had Muslims. They were all together dancing in the streets to try to take this down. See, because you got to keep them separated and fighting and agitated with one another. That's how you gain power, right? You get people to fight against one another. But if they start coming together and saying, nah, you're out. Yeah, and we'll argue later about all the things that separate us, but no, you're out. That's what will end it. So what do you got to do? We got to find another conflict, right? And if you remember reading George Orwell's 1984, they had something, they had two minutes hate every day, right? You had to, you had to look up and scream at your enemy for two minutes. Well, then they had hate week as well, where everything for one week was about hating against 
East Asia. So Oceania had to make sure that that was the only thing that we focused on, on was our enemies. And they had to go down. We had to fight them. We had to continue on with this because this is the most important reason why we suffer and why we're going down the road that we're going down. Because Oceania was always at war with East Asia. Do you think that the uh, conflict that's going around, on right now, and again, I have to be careful, right? Going on right now around the Black Sea region and that area of the Mediterranean, uh, do you think that they want that to stop anytime soon? Oh, no. Because it keeps on giving them an excuse. Oh, we don't have any grain for anybody because Ukraine was the, oops, sorry, was the breadbasket of everybody. So that's the supply chain. And, you know, we got to stop the gas because we can't let this guy continue to do what he's doing. So we got to quit that now. And, you know, of course, we've, we're dismantling the nuclear power stations as well all over the United States and Europe. So it's got to be wind and solar, guys. Sorry. Oh, you live in Phoenix. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, summers are going to be tough. Yeah. Those wonderful summer nights in Florida that get down to 70 degrees are going to seem quite nice to you pretty soon. By the way, we have a good governor. Um, <laughs> I, heard, I, I heard you have a governor that's pretending to be a Republican. His name resembled something to do with excrement or something. Anyway, but um, sorry. Sorry, Lord. Sorry, John. The Apostle Paul did this sometimes, too. Come on, you know. All right. So what they're going to say is that for you to get to that one resolution, you have to take those baby steps until you arrive at the big step of obedience. So what they've done is they've actually sent all of us. You know what they've done to us? You know where they've sent us for the past two years? Just like what you would do with your dog. Sent you to obedience school. So they have trained you to respond in a certain way to what they tell you to do. See, what they've done is they've groomed you. That's what they've done. And they're not stopping with just you. They want your whole family grooming in all sorts of ways. And if they're successful in doing that, they get what they want. They want your family. Because in the very near future, your family is the state and the state is your family. That's one of the end goals. But this is a new religious cult that you're being brought into. So as opposed to bar mitzvah, bat mitzvah, part of the catechumenate process and so forth that you all go through, you know, if you're a Roman Catholic, part of your catechesis that you go through if you're a Presbyterian and so forth. In Baptist circles, we just kind of go from one youth group to another youth group that has better pizza, better rock concerts. Well, you can tell people that there's a very dangerous virus out there. There's a very dangerous health crisis. And you give them a lot of concern. You give them a lot of vulnerability. And then you give them something that they must do, a resolution to that problem through the doctrine. You must wear something, let's say, over your face. And then you say, oh, no, you know, it's a lot worse than what we thought it is. And then you give them something else they must do. Well, you must also stay at home. That's the other thing that you need to do. You, you can't go to any of those other small businesses, but you all must go to Walmart, and that's it. 
That's actually safer, you see, than you going to all the other grocery stores and mom and pops and produce stations and everything else. No, just one place, and then we'll actually control the health crisis that way. I mean, did anybody just go, nah, this isn't what it's about. And, and then they'll say, oh no, it's not only that, but this is much worse than we thought. But we have something that we've been able to develop that hey, it's only been around for a couple months. We don't have time because this is an emergency. It's a crisis and we must do something about this right away. You must get this experimental unproven medical procedure immediately. And it's safe. And all the commercials will say that it's safe. And all the newscasters will say that it's safe. And they'll call you a conspiracy theorist if you don't take it. As a matter of fact, you say, oh, do you want to keep your job? Because I know how I told you all to stay home before, and you all had to stay home. There was no coming into the office. Well, now you have to come into the office by October 1st. We found that that's really a better way to do things, you see. But if you come into the office, you have to have the experimental medical procedure. And if you don't do it, well, yeah, you might not be able to keep a job. So you got to get the experimental medical procedure. So they funneled you again. And then you tell them, well, the un, you know, that experimental medical procedure that we told you that was safe and so forth that you had to take, that would stop the transmission of this health crisis that would keep you from having this health crisis. What they're going to tell you is that, oh, no, well, we found out that it really doesn't work that well. And it only lasts for about six months. So you must go back and get another experimental and proven medical procedure. And step after step, you ratchet up the vulnerability and the obedience necessary to escape that feeling of fear. And you tell them that they do it, and if everyone else does it for the common good, right? Then we're all going to, we're all going to be, as a, as a nation, as a civilization, we're all going to be okay. And now you create external pressure and the internal pressure to follow the new religious paradigm that you're putting everybody in, this new flow chart. And what you begin to realize is that a sacramental system is actually being created. There was a book written back in 1969 by Ira Levin called This Perfect Day. It actually talked about this. It said this is a couple hundred years in the future. Everybody basically lives, lives to about 60, except for these people that started this whole process. And for some reason, they're all 300 years old and they're fine. But we have to go back in every six months and have this medical procedure or else we die. So much like what has been the case in, Roman, in the Roman Catholic Church for years, the sacramental system, justification, re-justification, initial justification through baptism, re-justification through the sacraments, you create that same system. So the idea basically of an infusionary aspect of salvation as opposed to what? Reformed evangelicals would call it what? Not infusion, but Kyle? <laughs> Sorry. Imputation. Once and for all, right? So with the infusionary system, you always make that fungible and controllable. And then the refilling of the Holy Spirit that protects you, the re-justification process of the sacrament at the church that is extended through the treasury of merit. And you start to realize that right now what you've been caught up in in the last couple of years is a religious discipline. And where there is no doctrinal disagreement allowed, you are not allowed to, to, uh, to disagree 
with the cardinals and the bishops and the pope of this new system. That's it. What they say is the science, the knowledge, right? And you can't disagree with them. This is the way things are. And if you do, well, that's misinformation or disinformation. Do you know where the term propaganda and the first organization to stop propaganda and continue propaganda was actually developed? It was in the reformational response by the Roman Catholic Church. So if you don't believe me on this, what I'm saying, this is Kathy Hochul. Thankfully, she's not your governor. Now, if you take a look right here, as opposed to a cross, what she has is the word vaxxed. <laughs> so if you need any other further proof, I don't know what I can do for you. But so that is her salvation. That is the salvation that she wants you to embrace. So she's taking you through this process of vulnerability, and she's saying, there is one way towards salvation in the fourth industrial revolution and the Marxist utopia, and it is through the man Anthony Fauci. You know, so anyway. You still think I'm joking. Make sure that uh, volume's way up on this, by the way. I want to make sure everybody hears this. Here's Kathy Hochul herself. And now, you'll get to hear the great evangelist, Kathy Hochul, governor of New York. We have to get this community back. And what we went through this pandemic made us stronger. I believe that, especially when I talk to young people who weren't able to have their graduations from high school or a normal life for the last 18 months. I say to them, whatever comes your way in life, you are stronger. You are more resilient. God let you survive this pandemic because he wants you to do great things someday. He lets you live through this when so many other people did not. And that is also your responsibility. But how do we keep more people alive? We are not through this pandemic. I wished we were, but I prayed a lot to God during this time. And you know what? God did answer our prayers. He made the smartest men and women, the scientists, the doctors, the researchers, he made them come up with a vaccine. That is from God to us. And we must say, thank you, God, thank you. And I wear my vaccinated necklace all the time to say, I'm vaccinated, all of you. Yes, I know you're vaccinated, you're the smart ones, but you know there's people out there who aren't listening to God and what God wants. You know this, you know who they are. I need you to be my apostles. I need you to go out and talk about it and say, we owe this to each other. We love each other. Jesus taught us to love one another. And how do you show that love but to care about each other enough to say, please get vaccinated because I love you. I want you to live. I want our kids to be safe when they're in schools. I want you to be safe when you go to a doctor's office or to a hospital and are treated by somebody. You don't want to get the virus from them. You're already sick or you wouldn't be there. We have to solve this, my friends. I need every one of you. I need you to let them know that this is how we can get, fight, fight this pandemic, come back to normal, and then start talking about the real issues that we have to. Fighting systemic racial injustice, which exists today, and if there's a denier, I will take you on any date because I've seen it, I know it exists, and we are not gonna have a blind eye to this ever again any longer under my watch, and that is my commitment to you. So now, with every eye closed and every head bowed, 
Cal, could you please bring up the Pfizer vaccine? He'll be up here. Just come on up here, brothers and sisters. What I'm telling you is not hyperbole. And what I'm explaining to you, yes, I'm using emotion. I know that I'm not currently wearing a Brooks Brothers tie and having the right emotive experience that most of the folks that you follow are having, but I'm telling you this out of the fact that this is what's happening. And you'd better start talking about it right now. This is a cult. But think about what she just did there. She just transitioned from one cult into the next cult. So a religious system and a discipline basically has been installed over the past few years in the United States, a new cult. And even the churches got into the fray. And so to switch examples now of what Kathy Hochul just said, what else happened? What else happened at all the churches around our nation were involved in? Well, let's talk about critical race theory. And let me state that the laying of the groundwork for critical race theory uh, has been happening in the Reformed Evangelical Church, and as a matter of fact, everywhere for the last decade. Now, you just started hearing about it, but when I first heard about it back in 2009, and I started hearing it not just in the church, but in corporate structures that I was involved in, in geopolitics that I was involved in, they were all talking about this, about how this needed to be stalled. Remember the, the words that it's starting to make sense lately is a new sensibility that was being created for the world. So I will address that a little bit more in detail in the next few lectures, but let me just give you an operating understanding of CRT. And this is from New Discourses. It's Dr. Lindsay's uh, organization on his page, the Social Justice Encyclopedia. And basically, this is what critical racist system, uh, critical race theory actually postulates. It says, racism is a relentless daily fact of life in American society, and the ideology of racism and white supremacy are ingrained in the political and legal structures so as to be nearly unrecognizable. In other words, they're there, they're secret, they're behind every bush, they're in everything, almost pantheistically. You know, so like where you have a lot of people that will say, oh, well, the Catholic Church is behind everything. There's a Jesuit behind every bush, right? It's the same sort of approach. Well, it's actually secret racism. Racism is a constant, not aberrant occurrence in, in American society because racism is an engraved feature of our landscape. It appears ordinary and natural to persons in the culture. And one of the reasons is because they're going to basically give you confirmation bias in all this because what they're really after is our meritocratic system, capitalism. It's race Marxism, identity Marxism. Now, uh, Dr. Lindsay just wrote a new book where I understand that probably very few of you are going to be able to, to say that via memory to someone that you're trying to explain this to at Starbucks. So here's some quick ones that Dr. Lindsay has provided in his book, Race Marxism, which is available at the back table after our, our series today, he would say this. Please feel free to take a picture if you need to, okay? The belief that the fundamental organizing principle of society is racism. That it's all because of racism. This racism was created by white people specifically to oppress people of other races. 
That's why it was all created. Capitalism, meritocracy, and so forth was to oppress everyone else that was not part of their, of their ethnicity, of their gender. Whites, particularly white males, maintain this racism to maintain their own advantages in society. Now, this is basically how it works, though. Dr. Lindsay had said this, and I agree with this completely. This is really how they operate, is you just call everything racist until you control it. That's what you do. You can also apply that same kind of concept. Uh, we're here in June, a very prideful month. And basically, you call everything bigoted and homophobic, etc., until you control it. It's the same thing, using the same principles. Okay? But the infusion of CRT into the American psyche has worked nearly identically in the same pattern that we just examined in terms of how it happened in public health. So for years, Americans in the church were made vulnerable because of the infusion of CRT. And every single major denomination and parachurch ministry was involved in it. Just about, maybe there's a couple that weren't, but that's about it. And in every single seminary across the nation, before we got to 2018, and I'm not trying to pick on anybody, but this is the truth, nobody was speaking against it when it was actually going full force with a megaphone from everywhere. The renaissance of CRT in the American church was really from 2014 to 2018. And nobody was speaking against it. I tried to rally a whole bunch of guys to get together to stand against it. It took a while, it took almost six months. We finally ended up in Dallas and we composed the statement on social justice and the gospel. I still pay the bills on that one. That's the only way we can make it happen. And it started slowly but it really didn't have enough teeth to it, in my opinion. And so then all of a sudden, people kind of saw that it was a way that they could actually raise money because people knew there was something serious going on because James Lindsay and I were talking about it all, all the time, everywhere. So it's a vehicle now to make money, which then all of a sudden puts you in a position to where you want to make sure that you stay on the, on the speaking circuit, which means all of a sudden that, well, look, now these folks that were really hard and heavy for CRT, maybe they're going to start to back up because it's become out of control. They see now that there's a mass resistance against race Marxism in the church. So what you have to do then is try to create a soft response to CRT. You see, we oppose critical race theory, but we don't oppose good Christian men. So what we don't want to do is name names, like Ed Stetzer and Tim Keller. We don't want to name those names. We want to make sure that we preserve them, like Legan Duncan. Okay? And so, the thing that they did, though, when they came in from 2014 to 2018, even still in 2019, and believe it or not, they tried it again. They came out of the Mott. We, James and I talk about Mott and Bailey. They came out of the Mott, which was the place of safety where they gave a much more, you know, acceptable explanation of why they're doing. They went back into the Bailey hard right after George Floyd was killed, right, right after he died. And they went hard again for a few months, we came out even harder and made them have to back up, okay? But what they did from 2014 until about 2020 was they said, well, do you know these little things that you do are racist? Do you know that the way that you do church is actually systemically racist? It's a very white way of doing church. Did you know that you, 
are actually unconsciously biased and racist in the way that you speak, the terminology that you use, the fact that you show up on time. <laughs> I'm not kidding. No, no, that's, that's the truth. Did you know that you preach a very white gospel that really acts as a microaggression in communities of color? And so now what they do is they first make you feel vulnerable, right? We just went through this and we talked about the health crisis. They make you feel vulnerable. Oh, the last thing you want to be called is a racist. Now, maybe I've got a, you know, the way that Lord is, the Lord has providentially made me and had my life has made me a little bit, you know, I have all sorts of, I have, I lack a bunch of privileges that a lot of other people have. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, you know. Um, but I'm half Cuban, married to a Chinese woman. You know, I'm comfortable just about any ethnic situation. I can do whatever. It's okay. I, I can be a chameleon. And I see how those things work. I've been all over the world. So I'm not someone that's like, you know, I have to do it this way. I'm a little bit easier than that. So it didn't work so well on me. And I'm like, huh. you know, I've been in churches everywhere around the world. This has nothing to do with what you're saying. You're trying to bring in something else. So you're making people feel all of a sudden vulnerable. Oh, I never knew that I was racist. It's because you weren't. <laughs> and so now you provide a solution. You must deconstruct the ways of learning in the church and the ways in teaching that you have in the church and apply critical theory to everything. And so this is happening everywhere. Most people understand it from being what they're watching happening in the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention. But this also had the Presbyterian Church in America. It especially happened in spades as soon as one of my former clients, Dr. R.C. Sproul, passed away. Talk about going from the mod into the bailey. As soon as RC was buried, boom, they came out strong. Let me give you an example of this. This is from the Presbyterian Church in America. This is Alexander Jun. He is the 45th uh, General uh, Assembly moderator for the Presbyterian Church in America, basically like how you'd have the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. Well, you're, you'll hear from him, and you'll also hear from some other pastors here in this next clip. And what's fascinating to me is if you know anything about critical race theory, right? This is a concept that I would apply in, in education. I consider myself a critical race theorist. Um, you can be, and a Christian at the same time, yes. Uh, but I confess the same to you, that I'm not just, that I'm not a recovered racist. I'm a recovering racist, just as Dare I say it, you are, everyone. Vulnerability, right? Just as none of us can say, I'm a recovered sinner, and now I live the victorious Christian life. We're recovering, and we won't be finished until glory. The church's ambivalence about its commitment to interracial solidarity has been unmasked. Divisions, especially across racial lines, have been exposed, exposed, not created, exposed and amplified. For some, the church has become the least safe place for members of color, which is why I know many of you lived into this weekend weary of the alienating conversation. Enough. Okay. There's a few more. 
So that's Duke Kwan, who continues to be at the very forefront of the most offensive examples of using critical race theory and other concepts within the Presbyterian Church in America. But let's switch then from the Presbyterian Church in America into something that probably some of you are more familiar with in the Southern Baptist Convention. So we're going to hear a prime example now of a man that Dr. Albert Moeller hired at Southern Seminary as his professor of New Testament interpretation, Dr. Jarvis Williams. And when we think about white supremacy, it's not only the overt, violent expressions that you see on the television in Charlottesville, for example. But white supremacy is an ideological construct that believes that whiteness is superior to non-whiteness. So then how this shows up in part is, it shows up in curriculum, right? Uh, I'm a seminary professor, and in theological education, it's, it's, you're hard-pressed to find many evangelical institutions that have a regular requirement of black and brown authors. And often what happens is whiteness becomes the standard by which all good theology is judged. You understand what I'm saying? Amen. So that if it's right theology, it's written by a white scholar who is contextualizing that theology for white audiences. And so one of the things we see is, and hear this very, very carefully, there's racism by intent and there's racism by consequence. You can have racism operating in a context where is there are no individual racists. And that, in part, is the way in which white supremacy works in a socially sophisticated way. When you have whiteness as the priority, and when folks work and operate in such a way with curriculum, with economics, or with policies to maintain and to posture and to privilege that whiteness, and then to require those who are non-white to, cultural, to culturally colonize to whiteness. So then we think about reconciliation and ethnic hostility. The solution is not more black and brown faces in white spaces who colonize to whiteness. The solution is fundamentally, yes, the gospel, the cross, the resurrection, right? The blood of Jesus, but also dethroning white supremacy in all of the forms in which it shows up in Christian spaces, folks. Because when Jesus died to disarm those principalities and powers, one of those principalities and powers, I would argue, is white supremacy and all that it entails. So, so feel that tonight. White supremacy is not just violence or KKK or lynchings. It is also the belief, directly or indirectly, that whiteness is rightness. And everything has to be judged by that. Okay, so everything that we just spoke about, and uh, you know, uh, I'll go back to the time that I think I first introduced the some of the writings and the speak, you know, the, the talks of Jarvis Williams to, to, to James Lindsay and Peter Bogosian. It's like that is possibly the most intersectionally oriented human being that we've ever heard. How how much he packed in in two minutes from you know basically um, standpoint epistemology to decolonization to I mean, it's like a checklist of about 30 things that he was able to pack into two and a half minutes. Dangerous. Basically saying to you, and this, think about this radical idea, that different ethnicities and different genders produce different truths that are all in their way, yes, subjective, but are all true for them. 
what you end up creating is that Hobbesian battleground that Jordan Peterson has been referring to over the past six years, to where everyone is in competition against one another. You have split and separated everyone. So now instead of having, and we'll talk about this a little bit more tomorrow, but now instead of having, he talks about brown faces and black faces, a Latino, an Asian, as opposed to someone who is from an ethnicity that is white or Anglo and so forth. And really the funny thing is, is that the ideas that he's sourcing to be able to come up with a lot of this, well, they come from old dead German white guys and old dead French guys. That's the thing. So even his ideas that he's coming up with is like, yeah, well, that guy's buried in London. Anyway, so, so now, just like before that we saw, with the public health crisis that was formed in a religious context. What then you will hear, you must read new material, you must become an ally of those. And so now to remove this vulnerability that you're experiencing all of a sudden, that I didn't know I was racist, you must have an awakening that you are participating in a racist system. This awakening, this awakeness, this becoming woke and that you are participating in a racist system that you must now defeat. In other words, you have to understand that whenever the term white is used, what you mean is the capitalistic merit meritocratic system. And to remove this vulnerability, you now have to experience becoming awake or woke. You must read new literature from the new religion, their new pamphlets, their new books of theology. You must read the new devotionals to the new religion, to the new theology that you must accept that you must infuse with what you thought you knew because all of that was built on whiteness and white supremacy. And then you will help, this will help you to reprogram your mind, to think in different patterns. We'll need to read things like Robin DiAngelo's White Fragility instead of Spurgeon. You need to read Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist instead of Calvin and Luther. That's what you have to do. But all of this basically in many ways, goes back thousands of years. And we're going to finish up with this. I've got eight minutes left. What you're really talking about is the foundations of what you would call, was I already there? Pardon me, go back, alchemy. And alchemy is basically saying this. This is the best way to explain how alchemy works. The scientific method the process of falsification, understanding what's true, testable, etc., seeks to understand things as they are, right? The way they are in reality, in objective reality, that we know that this is true. While alchemy seeks to bring about a desired state of affairs. In other words, alchemy is saying, well, we understand this is what you think is true, but we have something better, and we need to bring about that state of affairs. To put it another way, the primary objective of science is truth, objective truth. That of alchemy, operational success. So what is operational success in their eyes? Dr. Lindsay will be talking about that in the next few sessions. That's what we're talking about, the theology of Marxism. And the utopia that you need to subjugate yourselves to. You need to be obedient 
as you were pulled down this process. But that's what alchemy is. Now, hermeticism really is where much of the root of this comes from. And I know a lot of you that are Christians and do apologetics and so forth, you would understand that hermeticism comes many, many, many centuries ago. Uh, it's pre-Christian in most of its forms and so forth. Uh, we come from the areas that, you know, you could say would be Egypt, uh, North Africa, as well as the Middle East, in many different forms. It started to exist in several different parasitic forms that would attach itself to other major world religions as well. And some of that would actually happen through Gnosticism too, but those are two separate things. But the foundational principles of Hermeticism and alchemy shows how these traditions are a direct means for accessing higher consciousness and true self-knowledge of Gnosis, the, the root of Gnosticism, as well as a way to, to extract the essence of one's own creative gifts. Now, hermetic and alchemical principles awaken inner knowing. Now, I want you to think about it as opposed to looking at the outside world and saying, I need to test and see what's true around me, what's actually ha happening. No, we just need to look inside of ourselves in our feelings and how we feel about something, where Dr. Lindsay refers to, again, the religion of pathos. So you awaken the inner knowing, liberate the imagination, and create a profound synthesis of magical and occult teachings as well as the initiation into the alchemical process. And the alchemical process is something that you will see throughout history, especially as we start moving into the worst of all ideas that mankind has ever come up with. When applying this, not to the process of taking a couple of, of metals and colorings and trying to say that you've created gold, which is where most people would refer to as knowing alchemy, or trying to create some potion, but where you're using alchemy in a social sense. And why is it that the Rosicrucians really made this at the basis of what they were doing from their philosophical meanderings? Why is it that then, all of a sudden, this really became something that was so important to Jean-Jacques Rousseau? And Jean-Jacques Rousseau and his concepts, of course, is what led to, in many ways, to the French Revolution. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau consistently is the one who was referred to really as the father of what we would have as modern day collectivism, of who was one of the first inspirations of folks like ah, Hegel and Marx, who continued to be someone who inspires many through the years. Why would it happen that alchemy would be something that George Soros considers so important in terms of his process? Why is it that George Bernard Shaw would consider that so important as well? It's because we were talking about it earlier in reflexivity. What is reflexivity? Well, in social theory, reflexivity is practiced by creating an atmosphere of transmission and acceptance of either true or false statements in order to fulfill the manipulative function. So the manipulative function is how to get you from where you were in the way that you thought of things, whether it be in your life or in your nation, in your civilization, in your family, and to get you to get to someplace else to think of that as normative. So what it's doing is it's creating an atmosphere of transmission and acceptance. In other words, you're talking about creating nothing but positive feedback, feedback loops without any negative feedback loop coming in. In other words, 
when there's something that's happening that you want to manipulate people through, you have to make sure that every bit of messaging, every bit of talk, every bit of discussion, every bit of even mass entertainment is going along with it without any kind of interruption or having something that is saying the contrary. So when there is a giant public health crisis going on, you want to make sure that every media source is saying the same thing. You want to make sure that every single commercial on TV is saying the same thing. You want to make sure that you're getting push notifications to everybody's phone when somebody catches the health crisis issue in Madagascar. If someone catches it in Chandler, if someone catches it in, in Gilbert, that you know right away, oh my gosh, it's happening. Because it gives you fear. And you want to hear about all the different things that are happening right now that give you confirmation bias to say, oh, there's a problem with racism, and we must do something about it now. And you have that constant feedback loop coming from every corporation. You sit down on a plane getting ready for a flight, you got to hear them preach to you about, you know, whether, let's say if it's back in 2020, about their support of the Marxist group that was burning down America, or some sort of kooky environmental idea or something else. You have to make sure that you're pushing that on everybody all the time and everything has to be about it constantly. Because you're trying to, trans you're trying to transform everybody into accepting a new system that is foreign to the way that they've thought of things the entire rest of their lives. That's why you're doing that. Now to do that, you have to create a fertile fallacy. And what a fertile fallacy is, is basically something that at its core is a lie, but it's wrapped in a little bit of truth. Like, was there a public health crisis? Yes, I got it. I had the medication to help me get through it very quickly, and I am a man of size, so one of those risk categories, actually several of them, but I was able to get through it pretty easily because I knew what to do. I was prepared ahead of time, okay? There's other people that had that issue that they went into the hospital because they were fearful, and the test that they did basically to see whether or not they should be put on a ventilator was, well, they didn't look good. It wasn't a question of O2 levels. So you created this and it was nonstop and it was the only thing that everyone talked about all the time. It was the reason for everything going wrong from supply chain crises to, to what we have to do in terms of our travel in the future, in terms of what we have to do with transportation in the future, which then caused the crisis of what we're taking a look at in terms of environmentalism. We quickly transitioned into that just like seamlessly, no problem into all these giant crises, just seamlessly traveling into this is a crisis and we must do something about it now and there is no other choice. Well, fertile fallacy, was there something there? Yes. Was it what they said it was? No. But it's used in order to make whatever you want to happen operationally happen. So what does reflexivity look like? Maybe it's hard for you to understand when I'm talking about feedback loops where you can't have a negative response to it at all. That's why you were banned from social media, for saying things and arguing against it. It had to be everybody at all time, nonstop. Everyone had to say the same thing. In other words, as if we were all back in medieval times, in the 15th century or the 14th century, before Martin Luther, and we all had to learn the same thing at the same time, there was no vernacular, it was only the Latin, you had to do what you were told to do. 
It's a lot like that. And this is what it looks like. I am Fox San Antonio's Jessica Headley. And I'm Ryan Wolf. Our, our greatest, greatest responsibility, responsibility is, is to serve our Treasure Valley communities. The El Paso Las Cruces communities. Eastern Iowa communities. Mid-Michigan communities. We are extremely proud of the quality, balanced journalism that CBS4 News produces. But we are concerned about the trouble and the irresponsible one-sided news Plaguing our country. The sharing of biased and false news has become all too common on social media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same fake stories without checking facts first. The sharing of biased and false, false news has, has become, become all too common, common on, on social, social media. media. More alarming, some media outlets publish these same stories this is extremely dangerous to our democracy. 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 So reflexivity creates a constant escapable feedback loop of positive reinforcement. All voices all the time saying the same thing. No resistance allowed. Now, the same thing can actually happen within the church if you're part of an ecclesial association such as the Southern Baptist Convention. So how does this work in Christianity? Let me give you an example. The last two Southern Baptist Convention presidents that we've had, J.D. Greer and Ed Litton. Now, everybody's talking about how Ed Litton plagiarized. He didn't plagiarize. He just received his scripts from the same place. Just like the newscasters did from Sinclair Broadcasting. It's no different. They're both reading the same script, preaching the same sermon. Both Southern Baptist presidents. Because they don't have their own words. They have the words of someone else who's actually controlling the process for the process of reflexivity. We'll give you a warning here that this might be the toughest week that we will have in the book of Romans. Romans 1, the end of it is tied in difficulty only with Romans 5, Romans 9, and Romans 11. This may be one of the toughest passages we face in the book of Romans. This is the steep climb I talked about. So in fact, let's just sort of loosen things up right now. Everybody turn right now to your neighbor, look them in the eyes. If you know them, if you know them, put your hand on their shoulder and say, this is gonna be a really tough week for you, okay? And tell them, say, I'm praying for you to have the faith and humility to receive this word. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now. And I, I want you to say, I know this sermon is gonna be really tough for you, but I'm here praying that you will listen and obey whatever God says. Go ahead, do that right now. But y'all, we believe that God's word is good, do we not? You see, we believe that God's word is good. In some of my travels overseas, I'll, I'll go into these temples that are erected to a foreign God. I remember being in one of them um, a, a while ago over in uh, somewhere um, uh, in Asia. And Paul David Tripp is a favorite pastor of mine to read. He's a pastor in Philadelphia. Uh, he was on a mission trip to Nepal. 
And he went, he was taken by a missionary into a temple. And there was, uh, I go in this temple, it's this gigantic, I mean, beautiful temple. And right in the middle of it is a, about a 25 foot statue of a, a goddess who has multiple breasts and, and multiple arms. And, you- and he said, and I, I will not go into details, but he does explain it, uh, that there was an idol in the center of this temple. He said it was one of the most grotesque things he's ever seen. Watch these worshipers come in and they would prostrate themselves before this statue. And many of them were very emotional. Many had traveled a lot of miles to get uh, to this. Um, very poor, some of them, and taking the little money they had and pouring it out and offering before this statue of this God. And our- but what really turned his stomach wasn't the shape of the idol. It was how people were bowing down to it, kissing it, putting money on it. He met a family that had walked for four months to get to this idol. Later, finding myself just going back over that incident in my mind and, and feeling sorry for the people there and thanking God kind of in my heart that I wasn't, I wasn't like them. But and he walked out of that temple saying, thank God I'm not like them. Then in the middle of that thought, it just occurred to me. I had a whole list of things in my heart that have taken God's place just like that statue had. When the spirit of God said, Paul, you are exactly like them. I compared it to if the earth were to say to the sun, I am sick and tired of you being in the middle of the solar system. If the earth were to ask the sun in our solar system, I'm sick and tired of floating out here in nothingness, surrounding you constantly. I want to be the center of this solar system. The sun might just say to the earth, all right, have it your way. The earth is 30,000 times smaller than the sun and would not have the ability to keep all the planets in orbit. And so the solar system would begin to unravel simply because the sun gave to the earth what it asked for. Folks, our entire solar system would fall apart. Why? Because the earth doesn't have the power of light and it doesn't have the power of gravitational force to hold this solar system in existence. Oh, sexual disorder. That was the first thing, verses 26 and 27. Now we've got economic disorder. There- There's economic disorder. Look at verse 29. Social disorder. He says there's social disorder. Social disorder. Just think Facebook. Uh, And that's just on Facebook. uh, Then you got spiritual disorder. There's spiritual disorder there. You could think of that as family disorder. And there's family disorder. They disobey their parents. You see, there are three ways I see us really going wrong with this in the church at large. I'm going to tell you three ways I think we've gone wrong. Number one. And one, we believe that God doesn't really care about this. First one is that we don't think God cares about this issue. We make the gospel message. It goes on and on. Here's the thing. That first came out, and I remember we were talking about this. I was actually with Dr. Lindsay in, uh, in Ojai, California, when that was first released. Well, that was first released one afternoon, and then another one was released of another sermon, and another one was released of another sermon. I think they stopped at about 30, and then all of a sudden, I can't tell you how many sermons disappeared off of both Greer's and Lytton's webpages of their churches. Because it wasn't a question of plagiarism, it was a question of scripting. And just like newscasters go before their audiences in Phoenix, or their audiences in Dallas, or their audiences in Denver, if you can have exactly the same messaging that is consistent, you can have exactly the same response. And that's what the intention was. So if you have two leaders that are separate people and so forth, and I've done my own prep here, you know, I give credit where credit's due. If I I take a quote from somebody, maybe I don't remember all of them because I have a tendency to memorize things. I think everybody here that's with my team knows that 
Unfortunately, I, it's hard to, to room with me if we're on the road because I'm listening to lectures as I sleep and as I get up in the morning and so forth. Usually the same ones I listen to for several weeks to get them in my head. But the fact is, is what you have is scripting to create the reflexive response that you want from the people. And it didn't just happen in the Southern Baptist Convention. It happened all over evangelicalism. Because the idea is this. If you're going to create a paradigm shift, if you're going to create a counter-hegemony off of what was, from what we would say, we all hold these things true. If you're going to start to make a shift, if you're going to make a change, well, then everybody's going to have to be on board with that change. And if anybody speaks up against it, they have to be eliminated immediately. And it's that way in everything. Ladies and gentlemen, this isn't just the battle for your pastors to fight. This isn't the battles that just your governor should fight, or your mayor should fight, or your council members should fight. This isn't just the battles that myself or James Lindsay should fight or Charlie Kirk or Chris Rufo should fight. We need all of you in this. We do. We need you telling the truth. If you're someone who's a Christian, you need to refresh what you know good doctrine to be. If you're someone who's an American, you have to refresh what you understand the Constitution to be, what inalienable rights are. To and the fact that no one can actually take those away from you, except a tyrant. No matter if it has to do with some tragic thing that happened in Texas a few weeks ago. Why should somebody who did something horrific and wrong, why are you paying the price for that, when actually the policies that you have created the situation that it actually ended up being? Because in essence, what you're doing is you're creating the situation that creates the crisis instead of taking care of the crisis in a way that love them or hate them or whatever disagreements you might have with our founding fathers, they put a pretty good system in place. And as well, if you're someone who's evangelical and reformed, you stand on the shoulders of giants, of men that were risking their lives for the truth. It wasn't about going to seminary and making sure that you got the right job as an associate pastor or a pastor to make sure that eventually you want to make sure you're making about 200000 a year. You have benefits and want to make sure you get those, those committee positions and so forth to get you a little bit more money. That wasn't the case. It was, well, if I go and I sit under Calvin's teachings in Geneva, it's basically a death sentence for me if I go up to Scotland and I start preaching. I'll be in jail. If I go to England and I start teaching, or Germany, I face almost certain death. The cauldron of persecution refines a people. It will refine America, I think. My hope is not in flesh, but my hope is this, that you will understand that just as we celebrated the men that charged the beaches in Omaha, in France, Omaha Beach and the others, and it wasn't just Americans, it was others as well. 
to try to take back Europe from this tyrannical rule that had taken it. This is an ideological battle, just as fierce as what men had faced before with bullets and bombs. These are ideological bombs that are going off. It is an ideological war. For those of you that are Christians, this is a spiritual war. You cannot worry about being liked. I'll tell you something if you're a Christian. Jesus will never be all you need until he's all that you have. And that means air conditioning. That means friends and community. But by putting your head on the pillow at night and knowing that you did what was right, even though it was costly. Very few that are willing to do that today. But you must. Those of you that are not within that community, that are here with us right now, we've got a nation to, stay, to save. It's not just our nation, it's Western civilization. It's your children's future that you must save. It's everything that men have died for for hundreds of years to save. It's the first opportunity of man to actually have control of his own destiny that you're here to save. It's the opportunity for you to have an opinion that's different from your neighbor and to be able to argue about it and still live peaceably and still have the right to say, I disagree and here's why. Or to say, okay, well, what's your proof for that? That right is being diminished and it will be taken from you. Because the God that's being created, which we will talk about tomorrow, is omnipresent and omnipotent, knows all things, is everywhere. It's not really a sovereign God, it's an algorithmic God. An algorithmic God for an algocracy. As opposed to a sovereign people under a sovereign God for a sovereign nation. That's why I called my, my organization Sovereign Nations. You are fellow, fellow soldiers just as I am. I'm not your general. I'm not necessarily your leader. All I can do is be a watchman on the wall. But there is an ideological and theological war going on right now. And we have one option. We must win. Thank you.